uh, where you might like to grab your books out again. And uh, I think we're on page 12 now, uh, if you can balance your books and your Bibles. Here's a question I came across in a book I was reading recently. What's in Jesus' head? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What's going on in Jesus' head during his earthly life? What did he think about? What shaped his understanding of the world and himself and his mission? What's going on in Jesus' head? On Monday night, uh, we saw that the central thing that Jesus is thinking about is the cross. Time after time, he says that the very reason that he came to die was, uh, the very reason that he came was to die on the cross. His whole life is directed towards it. He sees the cross as the solution. And so this morning we ask, well, if the cross is the solution, what's the problem? We saw that we are all by nature under the power of sin, death and the devil. We've all set ourselves up as the centre of the universe in rebellion against God, failing to love him or our neighbours and that we're facing God's wrath for what we've done. And yet, although those things are quite clear, we don't get a lot of information about what's going on in Jesus' head. We don't get much about how his thoughts on how the cross actually deals with sin. You get the occasional statement, the Son of Man has not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But we don't get a lot of insight into what Jesus is thinking. See, when you read a novel, you often get privileged access to the mind of the protagonist, don't you? You get to hear, Listen in on their interior monologue, what they're thinking, how they're feeling. But that doesn't really happen in the gospel accounts. By and large, they just show Jesus doing stuff, saying stuff. And you've got to pick up on the hints and the clues to figure out why. But Jesus does give us one huge clue about what's going on in his head. Uh, And if you come with me to Luke chapter 24, you'll get to see it too. So Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. uh, And he says there in verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What's in Jesus' head? Well, his suffering and death, his resurrection and the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't just tell that to the disciples. He opens their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. Because if they understand the scriptures, the Old Testament, 
they'll understand what's in Jesus' head. I once asked a student uh, if he'd read much of the Old Testament, and he said no. So I asked, oh, why not? And he said, um, well, I don't know. I guess because I think it's old. <laughs> I wonder how many of us think that way. But if we want to understand what Jesus is thinking, we've got to be reading the Old Testament. Because that's what shapes his sense of self. It's what guides him on his mission. The Old Testament is what's in Jesus' head. This morning we started at the very beginning of the Old Testament. We saw that God made the world, that he made us to rule the world under him. But that tempted by the serpent, Satan, the first humans rebelled against God. And in doing so, they brought upon themselves guilt and shame, the anger of God, death and eternal judgment. And that's true not just for them, but for all of us. But in the midst of God's judgment on sin, I wonder if you noticed in the bit we read this morning that he actually makes a promise. It's addressed to the serpent, Satan but it involves us. So come and have a look with me at Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 14. Genesis 3:14. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it's that promise, the promise that one day God will use a man to crush Satan, that really drives everything forward from there on. It raises the question of who is this serpent crusher going to be? So you turn over from chapter 3 into chapter 4 with a sense of expectation, a hope. And wonderful news, Adam and Eve have two children, two sons. And you think, well, maybe one of them will be the serpent crusher. But Abel is killed and Cain is the killer. Will they crush the serpent? No. The serpent crushes them. Oh, maybe it'll be Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. But have a look with me at Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. You can read it yourselves. What does Seth do? Nothing. He just has a son, Enosh. And what does Enosh do? Nothing. <laughs> And we're told, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The serpent crusher might take longer to arrive than they'd expected. They call on the Lord to keep his promise. All through chapter 5 of Genesis, death reigns. Until finally we reach the low point of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, 
I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And it raises the question, is this the way that God is going to deal with sin? Collect all the bad people together, collect all the good people together, and wipe out the bad ones. Wipe the slate clean. Just start again. And it it sounds plausible. It seems reasonable. But then if you flip over a few more chapters to chapter 8, verse 20, we find out what happens when the flood finally subsides and Noah exits the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. See, does God think that the flood has dealt with sin? No, not even close. The point of the flood is to bring judgment on evil, yes, but it's also to show us that our evil runs much deeper than any of us care to think. To quote the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So if everyone's evil, what can God do? Well, in Genesis 12, we start to see God putting his plan of salvation in place. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abram, just this random guy who's wandering around somewhere in Iraq, and he promises to make his name great to give him the land of Canaan, to give him offspring, and through him to bless all the nations on the earth. And although Abraham is 100 uh, and his wife is 99, God miraculously provides them with a son, Isaac. And it's a moment of great joy, not just because it's great for Abraham and Isaac to be able to have a kid when they're so old, their first son. It's great because God plan to bless all the nations of the world, to rescue them from sin, has begun. Maybe now Isaac will be the one to crush the serpent. And then we hit Genesis chapter 22. Come with me and have a look at it. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now that is a shocking command, isn't it? It's shocking to us, and it's shocking to Abraham. But probably for quite different reasons. See, it's probably not that surprising to Abraham that a God would demand 
his firstborn son as a sacrifice. Uh, Dr Josephine Quinn of Oxford's University uh, of Oxford University's Faculty of Classics, writing about the Phoenicians, the same people who live in Canaan, says the archaeological, literary and documentary evidence for child sacrifice is overwhelming. We've dug up tablets from burial grounds where there are thousands and thousands of infants buried, all male, all under a year old. Tablets thanking the God that they have now blessed them. What's shocking is not that a Canaanite God would demand the sacrifice of your firstborn son. What's shocking is that the Lord would demand it. The God who has promised to bless the world through Isaac. The author of life demands the death of Abraham's son. And yet Abraham obeys. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can you imagine how that would have felt? I don't think you need to be a parent to grasp some of the agony that's going on here. I find it hard to read this chapter without choking up. The heartbreak of the father as he prepares to offer up his son, his only son whom he loves. The willingness of the son, now a grown man, to trust his father even to the point of death. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a heartbreaking story. And then at the last moment, just as the father is about to sacrifice his son, Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. You think, oh, (laughs) at the last moment, God intervenes and provides a substitute. And Abraham and Isaac learn a lesson that they will never forget. The Lord is not like the gods of Canaan. He does not demand your firstborn son as a sacrifice. They might, but the Lord doesn't. No, the Lord 
the Lord provides the sacrifice so that we can go free. 400 years later, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac are no longer free. Having travelled to Egypt to escape a famine, Israel are enslaved by the Egyptians. They're under the power of Pharaoh, who commands that every newborn son be put to death. And again, God steps in. He sends plague after plague against Egypt, warning them, urging them to turn back. But they don't. The plagues culminate in the plague of darkness that covers the land for three days. But Pharaoh still refuses to let Israel go. And so we reach Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Come with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to do a bit of Bible flipping, but it's all going to be in order, so you'll just work your way through. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 11, this is how you would eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God will bring justice. Egypt have threatened the lives of the sons of Israel. And so now the Lord will strike the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But notice that even though Israel are the victims in this, uh, in this event, that they're the victims of the Egyptian evil, God doesn't say, hey, look, guys, no need for you to do anything. You're spotless. No, they're not. Israel are not saved because they're without defect. They're saved because a lamb without defect dies for them. It's another case of substitution, isn't it? Like Isaac. The lamb dies so that the firstborn sons of Israel might live. But now it's not just a lamb for a man. Now it's a lamb for a family. By one death, the whole family avoids God's judgment. The whole family is redeemed from slavery under an evil foreign power in order that they might belong to God. And it's here that we come to non-solution number two. Just teach God, teach people how to be good. See, God rescues Israel from Egypt. He brings them out in a mighty act of judgment to meet them at Mount Sinai, and there he makes a covenant, a deal, a contract 
with Israel. I once had uh, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. I don't know if that's uh, ever happened to you, but um, yeah, they seemed like nice people and uh, we were having a good chat about the Bible, so invited them in. And over the next few weeks, we, we caught up several times, uh, reading through the Bible, them trying to persuade me of their view, me trying to persuade uh, them of mine. But one of the things I discovered as I was chatting to them is that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the power of sin. They don't think we're trapped by it, that we're enslaved by it. They think sin is just ignorance. And so if they just tell people what God wants you to do, well, they can just go and do it. Problem solved. I'm free. I'm in control of myself. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's kind of how Israel understand themselves in their covenant with God. Come and have a look with me at Exodus chapter 24. Uh, Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7. Exodus 24 verse 7. Uh, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. In other words, God gives the commandments to Moses, Moses gives them to the people, and the people say, yeah, no problemo, God, we can do that. Easy. But actually, they can't. Sin is not simply ignorance. It's power. It's a warping of us on the inside. Israel is still going to sin. And even if they don't know it, God does. Uh, Earlier today, we got to see one of the clearest reminders of Israel's sin, their inability to to deal with it. Because every year they had to perform the Day of Atonement, the Day of Making Amends, so that God could dwell in the midst of his people without destroying them. And again, in the Day of Atonement, you see the sacrifice, the scale of the sacrifice escalate. It's no longer a lamb for a man or even a lamb for a family. Now it's a lamb for the whole nation. Well, strictly speaking, two goats. One goat, the scapegoat, had Israel's sins symbolically placed upon it and carried their sins away, never to return. The other goat died as a sin offering, suffering the destruction the people deserved for their rebellion against God. And to use the technical theological terms, the goats symbolise expiation and propitiation. Uh, They're they're technical terms, but the concepts are quite simple. Uh, Expiation just means taking away sin. It's like exit, out, away from, expiation. Propitiation, on the other hand, means making someone propitious, which is one of those useless kind of dictionary definitions, isn't it? What does that mean? Can't define a word by the word itself. But propitious just means favourable. A propitiation makes someone favourable. And that's what the sacrifices do. They're provided by God to expiate sin, to take it away, and to absorb his anger, to make him propitious. The goats do what the nation needs by copying what the nation deserves. 
they get exiled from God. They get destroyed in the fire so that Israel might go free. The goats get what Israel deserves. Kind of. And I say kind of because when you stop and think about it, and many Israelites must have, there's a pretty obvious question about all of this, isn't it? I know some of you have been asking it already. How can an animal die in my place? How can a lamb or a goat or a bull take the punishment that I deserve? I mean, imagine this scenario. Uh, You commit a crime, you're arrested, you're hauled before the judge, and he finds you guilty and he sentences you to death. And you say, quite right, Your Honour, that's absolutely true. I do deserve your anger. I do deserve the sentence of death. However, I have here a lamb. (laughs) The lamb will die in my place. Now, how do you think the judge would react to that? That's not going to work, is it? You can't swap a lamb for yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. If God says, sacrifice a lamb in your place so that you don't die, look, I'm going to sacrifice the lamb. But how can it possibly work? I mean, if a child does something wrong, you could imagine the situation where their parents might be able to take the punishment in their place, pay a fine, do community service, something like that. You can imagine a boss who might willingly take the fall for what one of their employees has done. Do the time for the crime of their employee. You can imagine in the military a superior officer who is punished for the crimes of a new recruit that they're responsible for. You can imagine that kind of thing possibly. But a lamb taking the fall for you? doesn't really work. And it was never meant to. In fact, the Old Testament points forward to something else, something different. It points forward to a lamb who is not simply a lamb, but a lamb who is a man. Come with me to Isaiah 53. This is our last bit in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. This is one of Isaiah's songs, or or rather one of God's songs, about a figure that he calls the servant. Isaiah 53, and we'll pick it up at verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? 
for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see the picture that Isaiah is painting? It's a picture of a sin offering, but it's not a sin offering of a lamb. It's a sin offering who's a man. A man will be presented as a sin offering by the Lord. An innocent man, a man without defect, who will bear the iniquity of his people, be punished for their transgressions, die for their sins. And what's the result? Verse 11, my righteous servant will justify many. In other words, many will be declared right with God, not by what they do, not by the death of a sheep, but by the death of this man who will bear their sins for them, the sins they were unable to bear for themselves. This is what's called penal substitutionary atonement. We saw this morning that all human death is penal. It's not natural. It's God's penalty for sin. And yet the servant has done nothing wrong. So why does he die? Why does he get the penalty he doesn't deserve? Well, because he's a substitution. He's subbing in for Israel. Like the ram with Isaac, the lamb at the Passover, the goats at the Day of Atonement, this man takes their place. He takes the penalty that Israel deserve to atone for their sin. It's penal substitutionary atonement. And so when Jesus appears on the scene and John the Baptist cries out, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... It's not a brand new idea. We've seen this idea of a lamb taking away people's sins. We've seen it escalating all through the Old Testament. We've seen it pointing towards the true lamb being a man. This is where the whole Old Testament, God's whole plan, has been headed. Jesus is the lamb who is a man, sent by God to pay not just for the sins of Isaac, or the sins of an Israelite family, or even the whole nation, but the sins of the whole world. Come and have a look with me at uh, Mark chapter 15, the passage that we read before. Mark chapter 15. We picked up um, in verse 16, just after the trial where Jesus did not answer his accusers. Just like the servant in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And then he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
like Isaac, he is the father's son, his only son, whom he loves. And like Isaac, he trusts his father as together they walk up the hill in Moriah, Jerusalem. And he continues to trust his father, a grown man, even as he is laid on the wood where he will be sacrificed. But this time there will be no ram to substitute for Jesus because Jesus is the substitute. He is the innocent one who dies. How is that even possible? If Jesus is innocent, if he's never sinned, if he doesn't deserve death, then why does he die? He's not dying for his own sin. He must be dying for someone else's. Well, that's penal substitution. Jesus is the Passover sacrifice. He's actually crucified during the Passover festival. In verse 33, we read that a plague of darkness covers the land before the death of the firstborn son. This time it's not for three days like it was in Egypt. It's for three hours. But now the firstborn son is not just the firstborn sons of Israel, it's the firstborn son of Israel, the firstborn son of God, the lamb without defect, whose blood covers his people, saving them from God's judgment, redeeming them from slavery to sin, death and the devil. How does Jesus' death do that? Well, because it also fulfills the Day of Atonement. Simultaneously priest and sacrifice, he offers himself as a sin offering in our place, suffering the fate that we deserve. He bears all our sins, past, present and future. He's the ultimate scapegoat who carries them off into the distance, never to return. No wonder that at his death we get verse 38. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the people, from the presence of God. But when sin is taken away forever, it no longer separates us from God. We're free to enter his presence, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's where the whole Old Testament is pointing. It's building all the way up to this point where Jesus offers himself on the cross for us. But then you might think, why all this elaborate procedure? Why this thousands of years of background and development all leading up to this point? Why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, isn't that what he tells us to do? Well, yes. But we never just forgive, do we? Just forgive. Such a flippant, glib kind of thing, isn't it? But forgiveness is not easy. If you've ever been really hurt by someone, you know forgiveness is hard. It's costly. I mean, imagine, for example, that you loan a car to your friend. Now, you're an impoverished student. You don't have it insured. And they, because they are evil, go and crash it. Well, how can things be set right at that point? Damage has been done. Someone's got to pay for it. 
There's really only two options, aren't there? Either you take vengeance on them, you demand that they cover the costs of your damaged car, or, out of love, you forgive them. But it's not just forgiving, is it? It costs you. Now, you have to pay for the car. But it's true at a personal level as well, isn't it? That if someone does something horrible to you, you have the same two options to set it right. Either you take out your anger on them, beat them up, sue them for all they're worth, tell everyone you know what terrible scumbags they are, you make them pay for what they've done, or out of love you could choose to forgive them. But that costs you, doesn't it? Because instead of inflicting the suffering that they deserve on them, you've got to suck up the pain and the anger and the suffering yourself. And that can be agonising. Forgiveness is not easy. You don't just forgive. Forgiveness is hard. It involves you sucking up all the anger and pain that the person who wronged you deserves. But don't you see? That's the cross. We've wronged God. We've treated him and the people he loves with contempt. Now, God can either take the anger out on us, judge us, condemn us to hell. That would be absolutely just. That would be nothing more than we deserve. But he could forgive us by sucking up the pain himself. And that's exactly what happens at the cross. Jesus' death is God absorbing his own anger at our sin within himself. It's God the Father and God the Son, together with God the Holy Spirit, absorbing anger at our sin so that they don't pour it out on us. See, forgiveness always involves both anger and love, doesn't it? And Jesus' death didn't make a wrathful God loving. God's always been loving. In fact, it's his love that leads him to be angry at our sin. But that same love that leads him to be angry at our sin leads him to send his only son, whom he loves, to take our punishment for us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So why all the elaborate stuff with the Old Testament in the first place? Why didn't God just get on with it, cut to the chase, go straight to Jesus? Well, perhaps Paul sums it up best in his letter to the Romans. Come with me to Romans chapter 3. This is our last passage for the night. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So what was the purpose of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament? Well, it was to testify to what God would do through Jesus. The Old Testament is God building up layer by layer a picture so that when Jesus comes, we can understand who he is and what he's doing. Without all that background, all those lambs that were sacrificed for sin, well, Jesus wouldn't make much sense at all. If you've never heard of lambs being sacrificed for sin, then the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is just a meaningless phrase. If you've got no concept of sacrifice, Jesus' death is just weird. But when you've got that background, suddenly the whole thing makes sense. Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement, the sacrifice that makes amends. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or literally a propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. How? Well, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So did the Old Testament sacrifices actually achieve anything? Did they bring about forgiveness of sins? Well, Yes, but not in and of themselves. Not because they actually dealt with God's wrath at sin, but because they pointed forwards to the thing that does. They point forward to Jesus' death. See, Jesus' death isn't plan B, as though God spent several thousand years trying to deal with sin through the sacrifice of animals and then finally had an epiphany and went, this is totally not going to work. I'm going to have to go to plan B. Jesus, what are you up to? No. Jesus is God's only plan. That's why God could leave the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He didn't give them what they really deserved. Instead, he stockpiled his anger at sin, past, present and future, and he poured it all out, full strength, on Jesus at the cross. But what does that mean for us? Well, says Paul, it means we can be justified. It means we can be declared right with God. Not by our own efforts, but simply by trusting in Jesus. Everything that separated us from God, our rebellion against him, our our self-centeredness, our insistence that no God, we know what's good and evil. All that, that's been paid for once and for all, past, present and future. Because on the cross, Jesus subbed in for us. He was the lamb who died in our place, taking the penalty that we deserve. All our guilt, all our shame, all God's wrath at our sin, it fell on Christ. We're like Isaac, saved from death at the last moment. Like Israel, rescued from slavery delivered from the power of sin because of the suffering servant who died for us. 
Max Licato tells a story uh, that he heard from a preacher in Sao Paulo in Brazil. The preacher talked about a family he knew who lived in a small house that was simple but adequate. It consisted of one large room on a dusty street. Its red tiled roof was one of many in this poor neighbourhood on the outskirts of the Brazilian village. It was a comfortable home. Maria and her daughter Christina had done what they could to add colour to the grey walls and warmth to the hard dirt floor, an old calendar, a faded photograph of a relative, a wooden cross. The furnishings were modes, a pallet on either side of the room, a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant. The young mother, stubbornly refusing opportunities to remarry, got a job and set out to raise her young daughter. And now, 15 years later, the worst years were over. Though Maria's salary as a maid afforded few luxuries, it was reliable and it did provide food and clothes. And now Christina was old enough to get a job to help out. Some said Christina got her independence from her mother. She recoiled at the traditional idea of marrying young and raising a family, Not that she couldn't have had her pick of husbands. Her olive skin and brown eyes kept a steady stream of prospects at her door. She had an infectious way of throwing her head back and filling the room with laughter. She also had that rare magic some women have that makes every man feel like a king just by being near them. But it was her spirited curiosity that made her keep all the men at arm's length. She spoke often about going out into the city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighbourhood for exciting avenues and city life. Just the thought of this horrified her mother. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. People don't know you there. Jobs are scarce and life is cruel. And besides, if you went there, what would you do for a living? Maria knew exactly what Christina would do or would have to do for a living. And that's why her heart broke one morning when she awoke to find her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. She also knew immediately what she must do to find her. She quickly threw uh, some clothes in a bag, gathered up all her money and ran out of the house. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat at the photo booth closed the curtain and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With a purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place where the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes was known. She went to the mall and at each place she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. 
It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade those countless beds for her secure pallet. And yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Well, the cross is God's picture taped on the bathroom mirror. The cross says to us, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Just come home. Because Jesus has paid for it all. It was always God's plan. That's what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about God's plan to deal with sin through this one man, through his son, Jesus, so that he could say to us, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please, just come home. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us that in spite of our rebellion against you, our independence, our stupidity, our sin and our evil, that you didn't abandon us, you didn't turn your back on us, but instead you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to take everything that we deserve, the guilt the shame, your anger at our sin so that we could come home. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.